podcast, Nadem, starts with some um, very naturally occurring conversation. We don't use the word banter, <laughs> but uh, preamble I th- before we before we officially start the podcast. So this is this is one of those situations where you and I, who have spent many hours in each other's company with very naturally occurring preamble, mm. can now prove that that's the case between you and I as well. And that, that it's not just Rory and Stephen who also provide that sort of naturally occurring <laughs> preamble. No, no, of course not. It's um, it's good to be honest. It's good to see something over your shoulder as well. It kind of looks like me, oh, yeah. but I'm not sure if it is me. I've worked, as as podcast listeners will know, I've worked incredibly hard um, at my Zoom background because often we produce clips. Mm. But unfortunately, such is the nature of the Zoom camera or the FaceTime HD camera on my Mac that, that there is an excellent and very prominent literary item in the bookshelves that I've provided for my Zoom background. But unfortunately, it just, it goes, the perspective doesn't quite work and it's not no. the cleanest. No, and I think prominent, prominent is a bit of a reach as well. Like I can only just about make out that it's me because I've had to see myself for 35 years. So, <laughs> you know, you need to be looking for it to see it, I believe. Well, like a, li- a little Easter egg. Yeah, essentially. That's what we should start doing, yeah. And then if, you know, if you really want to get into it, then maybe have it open the next time and then someone can really record and zoom in as much as possible. Maybe get a little little excerpt from the book as well. Oh, to, to, maybe I just hold it for like half an hour. <laughs> the subliminal oh. message and then it's holding the book for half an hour. Exactly. But the, can you remember we, we, we put in a little bit of an Easter egg in the book, but then it got cut. It was one mm. of the edits. Mm. Um, so that, that was a bit of a shame. So there's no Easter eggs in the book, which is... Um... Slightly disappointing, but that is a visual Easter egg for those people who are going to probably never watch this. <laughs> okay, so fair is, enough. This is Set Beast Menu, uh, the podcast which normally includes many more people than currently are going to talk to you because I'm Hugh Ferris and I'm joined by Nader Manua. Now, Nader, over the course of the last few weeks uh, on the podcast, following our hiatus, our return from hiatus, I have mentioned that part of the reason for the hiatus is because I wrote a book. Now, it's important to say that I didn't write the book, you wrote the book, but it's also important to mention that it took up some time and it's Mm. something that i want people to buy so why not whilst because of a combination of champions league finals trips to portugal and a little uh smattering of covid we have an opportunity to have a conversation at greater length than rory and stephen would be prepared to on seppi's menu because they would consider it far too much centered upon me of course yes um so now having the opportunity to center the conversation on me I'm now going to make sure it's centered on you because <laughs> Nader Manua's book, which you will see in the background of the Zoom, is called Kicking Back. And it has been a labor of love for the two of us over the course of the last year or so. It was out on May the 17th and it is available at all good bookshops and some terrible ones. Mm. And most importantly, online at a discounted rate. So go and get yours right now. We're going to put um, uh, an Amazon link at the very least in the in the show notes for today's set piece menu. Rory and Stephen will be back very soon. Don't worry. But for the next few minutes, just wanted to talk to Nathan about the fact that you've written a book. And it all started when I offered you the chance to write a book and you said what to me? I said absolutely not. It was, it was literally <laughs> that simple. Like, no, why would I do that? And, you know, interestingly, I think um, around that time I was very, I thought about books in just one particular way, which was that, you know, you need to have won 20 medals and, you know, one of those needs to be a World Cup as well. Otherwise, nobody wants to hear your story. But in fairness, from since the book's been out, people come up to me saying, oh, I've read your book. It's so interesting. It's so this. And that's a really, really weird feeling because it's like, what, why? I'm thinking, why do you know about my life now? But then again, <laughs> oh, it's because it, we wrote it down. Like here's, it's available. All you have to do is pay less than 20 pounds and you can know pretty much everything about me. So it's, um, 
it's fun. It's exciting. I, there's still that feeling when I go into the Waterstones and I think, I wonder if I'm there and I'm on the, I'm in the Waterstones on Deansgate. I'm in the Waterstones at, Tra- at the Trafford Centre. So, you know, if you see me just walking around and happen to just be walking past my book, don't think it's by chance. Just know it's just to sort of have that moment over and over again. I, I have been um, slightly obsessed with walking past bookshops prior to it coming out, thinking what it would feel like to be able to see it in that bookshop. And since it's been out, I have not passed one bookshop. Yeah, you need to you need to do better than that. It's been <laughs> out for a, just over a week now. Yeah, like just, just oh my gosh. Putting Trail up and down yeah. Deansgate. So I need to, yeah, exactly. I need to go from point A to point B via a bookstore. That's <laughs> that's the way to do it. And it's, it's, it's good. Obviously, we're going to be biased, but I think the story is very, I think the book's very good. I think you, you help write it in a very, very good manner because people that know me well as they're reading through it they can hear that's me and I think that was the biggest thing because we didn't want to be in a situation whereby someone was saying did you really say that is this how you'd really talk Mm. but you know it definitely does feel like something which I did and I have the story but you have the skills to make it um into something sellable well, here's the the interesting thing, because I, I, obviously Nadem is doing a lot of uh, media at the moment, having a chance to, to, to sell the book. So what I want to do is to not necessarily have the same kind of conversations, for, mainly for your benefit, Nadem, so mm. you don't have to regurgitate all the stuff that you've been saying elsewhere. Mm. But talk, talk a little bit more about the kind of process that we shared together, but also more importantly, who you are and why you decided to do it. Because I joke that uh, when I first asked you, you said no. But the reason was, as you articulated, football or autobiographies just tend to be a list of achievements by somebody who has achieved a lot. Now, you've achieved a lot, but it's all relative. So if you're mm. thinking about Sir Alex Ferguson selling a book and you're thinking about Nader Manure selling a book, there's a, there's a bit of a disconnect there. But the whole reason that I sat you down at that restaurant, which for, <laughs> for some reason uh, we decided to make an upper mill, which is up near Saddleworth <laughs> in the hills, yeah. because I was wrongly informed that you lived out Oldham way. Yeah. Um, which makes no sense at all, mm. knowing what I know now about you. But mm. I sat you down and I said, but the, the whole point was, is that you are more of an interesting person than, than pretty much anybody who's written a footballer's autobiography, not necessarily because of what you, just what you did on the pitch, but because of what you are as a person. So do you feel like having sat down with me for all those hours and now have a book, do you feel like you as a person has been reflected on those pages and is that why you decided to be swayed by me yes um (laughs) i think there's more of a just reading the book doesn't mean that you know me inside and out because you know there's certain things which didn't make the book for various different reasons and you know it is centered around football and one thing about me is well it's not centered about football but one of the things about me is most people know it's like I, I love football but I've never let it define me and you can sort of read that in the book but then in the same breath that's how I live my life now so some of the stuff that goes on on a day-to-day basis doesn't necessarily make it but that's who I am but yeah I'm, I'm happy with it because as a player people just judge you based on what you do on a Saturday but some of the relationships that you have with people within football exist away from those Saturday moments and overall, I'd probably say 99% of people who I played with and, you know, have worked with, you know, they, they really like me and they like me, even though essentially that my view on things is a bit different to say what the consensus is. So I think the book is good at sort of showing that. And I think more people will understand me now. I think some of the, the majority of people who buy the book will under, will have an idea of who I am anyway. But for those who didn't really know, I think they'll, 
I think they'll get it. They'll understand why the way I think the way that I do. They'll understand like why I talk about things in a certain manner. And to also go back to say when I initially said no, I was so naive because as I'm working for the BBC and I like, I remember um, speaking with Rob Nothman, I think it was. Hmm. And he says, one thing that you should try and do as a pundit as such is to give your insight, but then share your experiences as well. Hmm. So you're, you're basically storytelling every time that you have a microphone in front of your face. So in some ways I was telling my story without realizing I was telling my story anyway, and people wanted me to do it and I was getting work because of it. So then, well, why not? Why not do this extra thing? Because if I wanted to keep it completely private, then I wouldn't be doing on, I wouldn't be on radio, I wouldn't be on TV, wouldn't be doing podcasts anyway, but instead I am doing that. So why not take it down a more official route? And um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to feel, it's like a huge sense of pride to feel like, you know, to know that you've been published and some, and you didn't just say, right, I have a book, somebody just come and find this. Like they, people wanted to put this book out and people are buying the book. People are buying the book about me. It's like, it's really, really surreal. In some ways I'm sort of embarrassed, I'm a little bit humbled, but then also immensely proud because not everybody has that sort of um, opportunity. Not everybody will have it done as well as say I had it done. And yeah, like it, it exists. And I know lots of people will love it. And also this is the more key thing for me. Some of the footballing experiences which I share within there, a lot of people who've never said anything, never had a voice before will know and understand. And they won't necessarily come out and say, yeah, everything he said is right. But they definitely won't come out and say it was wrong because, you know, sometimes you need someone else to say something for you to be heard, if that makes sense. Yeah, we'll come on to that in a minute because I, I, that's an important part of the book that that people won't necessarily know will be in there unless they get it. So it's, it's up to us to, mm. to perhaps inform them of that. But there's, there's an inherent conflict within you, isn't there? Because I, I know you... You, you don't mind talking because clearly your media career is is a burgeoning one and is blossoming to a great extent. So you don't mind talking, but you, you did have a reticence and you weren't quite sure how to talk about yourself mm. at the beginning of the process. And I, I kind of had to convince you, don't worry, to talk in a way that you that you feel is natural and true to yourself. Mm. And then the kind of the rest does it does does its own work and it was rory smith who who said to me the most important thing when you speak to nadam is to make sure that what he says translates to the page in his voice and and you've already mentioned that that's that's an important part of when you read it you hear yourself and when people read it they should obviously hear you so how do you feel about do you feel like that conflict has been resolved are you happy now or happier to talk about yourself your experiences, the the abuse that you got, the tragic death of your mother, about those people who others might not have known that you despise to a great mm. extent, but have reasons for doing so. Do you, mm. uh, has that conflict been resolved to, to at least a certain extent? I think it has to a certain extent purely because in the way that um, it's written down and the way that I said things, the book itself is not mandatory, it's optional. So for somebody who chooses to buy it, that's because they want to hear that story. Whereas I think sometimes in a more open forum, you kind of resist sharing a lot of stuff mm. because you think about the pushback and the fact that does anybody really care? You know, you worry about something. Oh, I don't care. Move on to the next thing. I don't want this person on. But this is people who buy the book are wanting to hear my story. And they want to hear the story of the clubs that I've been at, the situations, the living in Manchester, coming from Nigeria, all that stuff. So with that, you can make a very, very specific product. It's almost like, you could argue like a podcast, you know, you you, cre- you are the creator of the podcast and you decide what you say and the audience itself are people who want to consume it as opposed to people that are being told that they have to. Some people might not like it. Some people might. The ones that don't like it will move on. The ones that like it will continue to come back. And that's almost like 
for me with the book, turning onto the next page, onto the next page, going onto the next chapter, finishing the book itself. And yeah, I feel like I, I it's, it is very weird talking about myself. Like, cause when I was hosting my podcast, I was talking about talking to other people about yeah. themselves, but then in the grand scheme of things, you know, who knows your story better than yourself. So when you actually have to put something down to go into a book, then yeah, it's, it was, it was a good experience. And I think, um, Everyone, like you are who you are today and you remember certain key events that led to this point, but there are a lot more events than just those key ones that made you who you are. So through going through the process we did with the, with the meetings and so on, there was a lot of stuff in there and it made me think about things in a different light and saw the effect that it had on me in the time, even if it was, say, talking about my first two years of my career, the way I see those two years now compared to how I did in the moment, you know, means that I can talk about it from both perspectives mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a privileged position to be in because most people never get asked those sorts of questions. They never really have to go back to a topic like that and go through specific parts of their life and really go into the details about it. So then as you start going through those details, you just get those feelings back. And then you sort of see the highs, the lows, how you navigated it. You make you think, I wish, I wish I did this. I wish I didn't do that. But instead of just thinking it, you're saying it. And now, you know, that story itself is a far bigger story than say just dealing with something in the moment like you normally do and as as a player and also in terms of my voice being heard there's a reason why like players give really bad interviews most of the time especially when it's just before or after a game and it's because they don't want to be misinterpreted so they say nothing like the if you can give the most basic answer ever you can't go wrong but sometimes when you want to add a bit of humor or nuance to something you're putting all your trust into the person that's going to write the article to make sure that that tone comes across because say sarcasm doesn't come across great on paper, does it? No. But especially when as, somebody... as I know from your text messages. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, yeah, but you know, I'll, I'll start leaving voice notes. How about that? See if you can pick up that sort of language. But yeah, so you, you're always you're always wary about being too open as a player or being somebody in the public eye because you don't want people to not understand you. But then the paradox is you also want people to understand who you are. But yeah. how can you do that when you don't trust the people themselves to pass over that message? Like you can joke about a team on the weekend, joke about performance, but as soon as it's written down or clips, like that's the thing in this podcast era as well. Just catch a five second clip of a five hour podcast. And before you know it, the five hour podcast is worthless because of that five second clip. Because yeah. you said something with, with your tongue firmly in your cheek or whatever. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting because we, we've spoken before on, on Seppi's Menu about this idea that, that the flash interviews, as they're called, the immediate interviews afterwards, don't necessarily represent the best of the player, but also the player might not be able to remember what has just happened particularly clearly because it has just happened. Their adrenaline is mm. still buzzing. They're sweating probably from the game that's happened. So actually the amount of time that you've had since everything, almost everything that, that's happened, has allowed it, it, it to crystallise and it allows you to, to articulate it better. Which then mm. brings me to my next question, which is how have you found the, the kind of the promotional aspect of it? Because not only did you have to go through the, the process of talking to me about it, now you have to kind of regurgitate it on, on yeah. a most daily basis. <laughs> and you get all manner of different people speaking to you. You get people who have clearly not read the book. Yeah. You have people who are misspelling your names, name on a... On a um, on an Aston, as we call it in the industry, or Chiron, as they say in the States, at the bottom of a visualized uh, interview that you did, and also didn't get the name of the book right. And if you read the introduction of the book, you'll understand how important it is that for not just Naden, but for everybody that, that your name is spelled correctly, but particularly given that it is theme, a theme of the book and how much identity is that theme that goes through it. 
and you've got people who are really engaged in it and have and have read the book and and mm. really want want to know that kind of stuff so so how much have you enjoyed or how much have you learned from this whole promotional aspect of it and going over and over and over and over yeah um i think the people who've read it make for a very interesting conversation because it could talk about anything and they could start with one question and it could lead into a totally different spot purely based on how my answer goes whereas i think for other people they've got a rough idea of what's inside it or they've been briefed by somebody to ask about x y and z that's it so they'll just do x y and z and basically give me the runway to just say whatever I want but it's not really I don't really enjoy those ones as much because like it's not it's not authentic mm. if you know what I mean like it feels it feels very forced like I hear Nadam okay so you've got a book out tell people why they should read it Ugh. and it's like that's like a job interview yeah like and I will and I will say why I think it's a good book and all that stuff but I'm not like you can pro I feel like you can promo a book by having a conversation about it between two people who've read it and understand it as opposed to promoing a book by allowing someone to become a salesman directly in front of everyone like it's not Shark Tank or something like that you know <laughs> so it's been there's there's been a lot from like supporters club to like national newspapers you know national radio local type media and it's what it is like you know and I, I do enjoy talking but the interesting bit is when say you go on a run where there's probably four or five things you're doing and they're all saying the same things and asking the same questions yeah. and there was one day in particular where I booked in I think it was four on the same day and I was on number three and I said something about 30 minutes in I said oh, I'm sure I said that before but I was like did I say that before or was that <laughs> on one of the early ones I genuinely didn't know they must have been thinking this guy's crazy he's definitely not said that to this point so you can go you can lose your mind a bit but for all the for all the lows you know there's tons of highs because I'm, at the end of the day I'm doing I'm talking about my life and I'm talking about my book and not many people have that sort of privilege. So I can overcome it, as was the case with lots of other negatives and stuff in terms of my career. And I can, yeah, just enjoy it. Just, I'm just enjoying just exist, just literally just existing in book form. Like I could, I'm still there over your shoulder. It's not gone anywhere. And that was just, it's, it's, it's incredible. I never thought it'd be in a situation like when we went to, when you and I were at the city stadium, I was doing like a book signing in the club store. Like that was never something I ever dreamt of, you know, as a guy who was, as a young kid going to the club store at main road and things like that, a club shop at main road, like it's, it still doesn't feel real, but every time you speak to someone, it's just, you're just reminded how real it is. And then you just make sure that you don't say anything completely stupid. But then when you're talking <laughs> about yourself, why would you? There'll be those particularly a lot, a lot of our American audience who will know you via rail salt Lake. Um, mm -hmm. there'll be, obviously the British audience who know you via Manchester City and QPR and Sunderland, but there may all be some of the global audience that we have who don't know a lot about you. Well, you were born in Nigeria, you came over to Manchester at the age of five and you joined Manchester City's academy at the age of 10 and then went through and played uh, for the first team at the age of 17 for the first time whilst you were doing your A-levels. Um, and this is, this is the kind of the juxtaposition in the first part of the book about your education and your identity and how you felt as a young person in Manchester and how it was a, a very kind of different journey to what you would imagine that most footballers have, mm. certainly once they become footballers. So for those for those people who, who don't know you, I'm not going to talk about at length about Manchester City or Sunderland or Real Salt Lake or or QPR because that's all in the book and it's also Wikipedia-able. Mm. What, what I w want to talk to you about is this this kind of aspect of identity because that's the stuff that if they want to read the book they might be surprised by because it's the non-football stuff 
So how, how Nigerian do you feel and how much has that manifested since you became a father and since the passing of your mother and you, the, the intensification, if you like, of that sense of family and belonging? Um, it's a very good question. And well, I needed a, a sip of my brew, so I needed to make it a big one. Okay, cool. So yeah, let's, let's ask him about six different questions within one question. Yeah, that's, that's the trick. If anybody ever does that, by the way, and you'll be learning this as a, as a new media talent, if they ask a big, long question, multi-part question, it's usually because they need to write something down during the answer. Or okay. if you're me, take a big sip of tea. Okay. Okay. Well, sip on, drink it in, as they say. Um, <laughs> So in, from an identity standpoint, like I sound the way that I do and I live in Manchester and I love living in Manchester, but I, my name is Nader Monilha. Like I am Nigerian, you know, my, I, my parents were born in Nigeria, my grandparents born in Nigeria, myself born in Nigeria. So even though I'm raised here and I understand the culture here, the culture which I am attached to without choice is, is the one back home in Nigeria. Like, culturally you have to call it home this the, i've not i've not been back in 30 years but it's still home mm. because that's that's where we're all from you know the, there's hundreds of millions of us all around the world and nigeria is still home mm. your identity might change you might live in this place have lots of money have no money be doing this be doing that like culturally that is home and that means you know for me that side always matters to put it into perspective like i, I support england when they're playing and so on but like I actively root for Nigeria. Like the pain of Nigeria not qualifying for the World Cup hits me differently to say England and the way they lost in the Euros last year. Like that, that I was frustrated by that. I was devastated for those players and for some of the fans. But, you know, I still don't look at it and see myself in there. Whereas when I watch the Nigeria team, I see myself in there. When I see the crowd, I see myself in there. I see like what my parents would be. I see what my cousins would be. I see what my grandparents would be, just everyone extended family and so on. And again, another example was I went to uh, one of my long standing friends weddings a couple of months ago and he had 500 people there. This is a Nigerian wedding. And in the room, I probably didn't know 490 of them, but it couldn't have felt any more familiar. But the opposite of that, if I was at an English wedding, I had 500 people it wouldn't necessarily feel the same. The sound of the music, the way people behave, the way that they dress, like that's me. But then in the same breath, like I say, I sound exactly like I do now. And it's got that sort of Mancunian twang to it, which comes out every so often, even though I, I try and just speak as sensibly as possible. So I am, I'm somebody who takes on both, but there's one which, you know, will be with me, whether I was living in Manchester, living in, you know, Lisbon, wherever. Because there's one that literally is part of your DNA, and that that, and I made sure that my sort of children understood that because they've all got middle names which are related to my culture. Because very quickly, within two generations, there might there might be no link to Nigeria left at all. So there's just something there, and I think hopefully in the future I'll take them back. I'll take them back home, and they can see it for themselves and understand that this is a big part of who they are. Because that sort of family tree and stuff. You know, there's some very, very strong, significant roots in a certain part of the world. And yeah, I think that's that's always going to be a place which I'll call home. And your your family homes when you were a, a young boy in Manchester, the first was in a place called Miles Platting and then you moved to Harper Hay. Mm. These are these are these are difficult places to live in, in yeah. Manchester. And you came from 
a little more affluence in Nigeria, when your parents mm. came over, they sacrificed that so that you could have an education that perhaps you might not have been able to get in Nigeria. And not only did they sacrifice that, they then came over to Manchester and sacrificed every hour that God sends to to try and provide that education, that private uh, yeah. fee-based education. But mm. was given all that difficulty and the struggles that your parents went through to provide you that, was there still that sense within your house of that 500 person wedding with that sense of joy and the music and that feeling was was that the culture of your home when you were a kid um it was very early doors uh very early in, in the time when we were in manchester uh i'd say for the first probably five six years we were very much a nigerian household that just happened to be somewhere else on the planet uh but in time you know we made adjustments, brought into the culture a bit more of the people around us and the places that we saw, but that didn't come naturally to us because we'd never really experienced that before. You know, that's the thing that you forget sometimes. Some of the stuff that we do now is because we've done it for years and years, but back then we hadn't like, so we didn't have a clue. I remember even little things like I was going to bed at 8.30 right until I was probably about 12 years old, you know, stuff like that. That's just what was going on within. So when <laughs> you get that. to my age, you'll be doing it again. Don't worry. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it as well, but <laughs> It's yeah, it, it was different and it was different to our surroundings. And even to this day still, like if I go around to my dad's house, it does feel like it's a Mancunian house, but there are certain characteristics and behaviors which you just abide by and just stick to. Like the way I describe it is, you know, from a respect standpoint, you're doing anything that your parents say you should do. So every time I go next door to my dad's house, I worry that if the floors are dirty, he might ask me to sweep up. And if he does, I'm going to have to be sweeping the floors in someone else's house. This is me as a 35 year old male. So, um, yeah, it's the culture was, 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 it was there in the household. And, it, you know, even to come to this point now, like I've traveled the world. I've been very, very privileged. I've been everywhere with football and football's meant that I can go travel to places on holiday. Like the only continent I've not been to is South America, I believe, you know, as long as you're not going to talk about Antarctica or anything like that. So I've not been to South America, <laughs> but I've been to a ton of places and I've had tasted a ton of different food, different cultures and all that stuff. And I'm like, Aline is, oh, I really like Italian or I really like, um, say, Thai food or I really like Japanese or something like that. And then all of a sudden I just taste food back from Nigeria again. It's like, do I though? Like this is, <laughs> that just feels different. All those other foods I taste, but for this one, like I, for, for like Nigerian food, I feel it because it takes me back to when I was younger. It takes me back to those surroundings. And as a consequence, like even to this day, like I, I am who I am, but I'm still always going to get factory reset the moment I taste some jollof rice, if that makes sense. But what's the most Mancunian thing about your dad now? You said that he is some, some of the elements started to pervade into to the culture of the home after about five or six years but now now that he's what in his 60s what, what's the most mancunian thing about your dad as you can see it most mancunian thing about my dad or british uh, or, or english what if, if uh, that's he does he does like a little fake mancunian british accent sometimes as a, <laughs> when he wants to talk about something or like just the fact that he buys into watching mancunian football but aside from that like he can be in his house. He could be watching like Sky News, but there's a good chance to be watching like Nollywood on his screens or something really? like that. So he still very much is a part of that. And that's fair because a lot of his family are still in Nigeria. So he speaks to them all the time. And he doesn't want to really just cut ties with that because it means so much to him. So yeah, I don't think he's fully converted to say the very least, but you know, <laughs> that's, that's very much who he is. 
and and they came over to try and give you this education that we've spoken about and you were doing your a levels when you were a professional footballer which is an, an almost unique uh, story that you can tell but how much did that education form the identity that you have now because clearly you're articulate you're, you're an intelligent guy but you might have been articulate and intelligent regardless of the education is there something about doing that that has made you who you are or was it inherent within you all of this stuff anyway um i think our family setup meant that you know we were gonna we were gonna do well in school because nothing was easy but we did work hard and a problem wasn't a problem that couldn't at least be attempted to be solved you know, whereas I think sometimes for other people who I ended up going to school with, if there was a problem that was too hard, they just turned their back on it. Whereas for me, I always used to take that head on. And also in terms of the private education, the thing which like I always forget was I was, I was in it for five years. I wasn't in it for seven. Mm. But in those five years, it changed the way that I thought about things, say the structure of a lesson, the structure of doing homework. We had uh, end of year exams, you know. And the scores mattered. So from the moment I was in there in year seven, you're actively having to figure out, they're getting you ready for year 11. And I didn't realize, like, that felt hard in the moment, but it meant that when GCSEs came around, it wasn't like the big shock to the system, like, oh my God, now you've got exams. Because that's what we did. In fact, we did it, it'd be twice a year, we'd be doing exams. So I think it just helped you be more organized, be more thoughtful about how you approach things, understand that, you know, there are solutions There can be resources to help you. You don't just give up when something gets difficult. And also it was kind of humbling because there were some like geniuses in my school. So you, you could have a 75% in a test, but somebody had a hundred percent. So you just knew that, you know, even though you did well, you can always do better. And it's like, how does this, how is this person doing this better than me? When it came down to things like languages and stuff, someone's been speaking French or whatever from when they were five or what and all that stuff, but it doesn't mean that you can't get better. And then lo and behold, then when I went to college, some of those beliefs kicked in. And I think as we mentioned in the book, I'll never forget after the first year um, doing business studies, I think it was, the teacher said, whatever score you get this year, the score will be one grade worse than next year. And I just thought, why? Why is that the case? Whereas I think a lot of the class, class just decided, yeah, I guess that's what it's going to be. But then I went the opposite way. I literally got one grade better. So how does, how do you explain that? Given the fact that, you know, we still have the same textbooks and everything else. Cause, cause you are clearly as a, and I planted that question to get onto this point, which is that you are an analytical person and yes, you do. If there is a challenge, you, you will face it and try and deal with it and work it out as mm. opposed to, to running away from it. But, but that you're a particularly analytical person, even with your own kind of emotions and reactions and instincts when it comes to being a professional footballer, because there are loads of people in the book names names of people almost everybody listening will recognize joey barton harry redknapp mm. stuart pierce roberto mancini mm. people that that you didn't necessarily get on with but your reasons for articulating that in the book is because you want to lay out and and stop me if i'm putting words in your mouth <laughs> rather than one hundred and ten thousand on a page sure <laughs> but if if you've got if you've essentially got a beef with somebody you are happy to try and illustrate why you have that beef because yeah. you want to lay out the reasons for those people who might think that you're just having a go for no reason or there is a bitterness for some reason or mm. you're you're seeking revenge mm. which is a, a common theme in a in a in an autobiography and it's a common theme that you see often without foundation and it is criticized for that 
So did that education and did that opportunity to kind of discover that about yourself help you when you found yourself in a difficult personal relationship with some of those names that I mentioned during your career? Yeah, I think I think it did. But then I think some of that as well just came through just being in the household that I was in. You know, you have to be respectful of your elders and that concept of being respectful for your, to your elders is the same as being respectful for people who are essentially above you in the pyramid and so on. You know, you can't just go around saying and doing whatever you want because at the end of the day, like, who are you? You get a sense of who's got power and who hasn't, who's got leverage and who hasn't, like, what's your job and how does it relate to this other person? And then also then you you roll that into football and, it doesn't matter how good you are as an individual, it's a team game. And the team is more than just the 11 players on the field. It's sometimes the, it's the 25 players in a squad. It's the people doing the kits, the people serving the food. It's the people that are organizing your travel. You know, so you understand you're a part of a machine as such. So whatever issues and stuff that you have, at the end of the day, like, are you going to kick up a fuss to the point whereby you stop the whole machine? Or are you going to try and do your best to try and make the machine whatever it can be in any particular moment. And it's not to say that it'll make it great, but it doesn't mean it has to get worse. So with some of the people I've had issues with as a player, like you, you made a very good point. It's not about revenge because those people, I didn't speak in the time because I just wanted the best. I just wanted to do the best that we could until the circumstances changed. Like unless somebody crossed the line, I wouldn't go out and say too much. Like I've had managers who'd give us tactics for games, which I didn't believe in and nobody believed in, but I went out and did my best according to those tactics. But now you can say that, you know, cause it didn't work out. Well, these are the tactics that I didn't believe in. So there's a sort of thing there about being a good person, being a good teammate, but then not having to like everybody. And I think um, as well, in regards to those people that we named, I'm not trying to convert anybody to not like them. I'm just expressing why I didn't get along with them this is the reason why. And that's because one of my biggest, I wouldn't say fears as such, but things which I hated the most is being misunderstood. Mm. I really, really dislike that because I'm not bitter. I'm not jealous. Like, so I'll tell you the full story and I'll tell you why it is. And you might disagree with my opinion, but put yourself in my situation and wonder if you think the same way, see the same things that I've seen, the way that somebody acted, the way that, you know, certain things panned out and think and ask yourself, is that reasonable? If you think it's reasonable, fair enough. But most people think that it's not. And then you can see why it went down the way that it did and why I'm the person that I am. And you learn more about the people who, you know, in, in those key moments, nothing was being spoken about. And you someone say, oh, you should have said it in the time, should have done, it, should have done this, should have done that. It's weak to do it now. But I guarantee you, nobody's out there trying to sabotage your own football team. Well, that's a lie. <laughs> I'm not out there to try and sabotage my own team because at the end of the day, I just want to try and keep things moving and just focus on the task of trying to be a successful individual within a team, within a football club, so that people who are associated with it can be happy. You, you mentioned the word leverage there and you, you use the word leverage a lot. Um, and it's in the book a lot because you, you talk about your ability to react in a certain situation in a certain way, mm. depending on the amount of leverage that you or somebody else has in that situation. And that, Two, two elements of, of playing for the England under-21s and getting racist abuse, firstly from the crowd in, mm. in a match against Serbia, and then just a few months later when you played against Montenegro and you, you're heading off after a warm down and you're heading down the tunnel and there is an armed guard who makes monkey noises at you and as you turn around, those guards become emboldened. Mm. And it is the moment in your life, is it, of, of the least leverage where you are not only being abused but the person doing it is emboldened by your reaction 
and has a gun. Mm. That the the time in Montenegro was was the one because with issues I have I've had in the past to do with racism and alike, you don't go seeking help. You instantly react. You know, it's the same way somebody could say something to somebody, say, listen to this show now, if they're talking about their family or talking about somebody that's, that's passed or talking about their football club or something, something that really matters to them. It catches you off guard. And the first thing you say is you don't look around and say, oh, come, someone come help me to come and deal with this. You try and deal with it yourself. So then when you turn around and you see, you, you realize you're in Montenegro and it went from one to several and they've got guns. You ask yourself the question, well, what now? Are you really going to go into it head first? Because for all I know, they'd probably, maybe they didn't speak the same language. Like it's not up to them to speak English when they're in their home country. So what am I going to say to them? What am I going to do? And it's police basically, or soldiers, as is the case, in my opinion, in everyday society. Like for some people, they're good people who are trying to do a good job, but there's some people who just want power. And when they have the power, they'll behave however they want. And I can't afford to risk anything in my life to go and try and address something which I believe is wrong because I just didn't have the leverage. And that's an extreme example. But it definitely was one because I'd, I'd ask anyone in that point, like, what would you do? Literally, what would you do? You've turned around and now more security guards are looking at you and, so ask, and they're challenging you saying, come and try and do something. What I'm going to do throw a football boot at them and then run away. Like, I'm not at home. I'm a long way from home. They are exactly where they need to be, but I'm not. So unfortunately, I have to walk away from it. Then when, when you were in the States in, in 2020, d- during the pandemic, and, and George Floyd was murdered, you tell the story in, in the, the last chapter of the book about how you reacted to that moment viscerally. And it's, and it's incredibly powerful, the way that you and your wife Lucy were, were sat on your sofa and, and how you just collapsed into tears. But what I'm interested in asking you now is about the juxtaposition of that moment compared to when you were... 20 years old in that tunnel in in Montenegro because back then you had no leverage and there was no no opportunity really for you to behave in a way that you might have wanted to but then mm. with the maturity that you had when when in 2020 the black lives matter movement and the, the murder of George Floyd was was so present in front of you in the country in which you were living at that time can you tell me about how much more capable you felt at that time to be able to talk about it and was there an environment in which you felt the words that you came up with at that moment Mm. would have life um i think one difference between both of those moments was the thing in the tunnel in montenegro was basically between i think it's myself joe hart and those soldiers in the us everybody saw that around the world everybody saw that and you're left in a position whereby you, you you look at it and say, is this okay? There were some people tried to evade that question and said, oh, well, what did he do? Trying to justify it to make it okay. But you couldn't because it was horrendous. So at that point, the world's in a different spot because now all eyes are on people to see how they react, you know? And I was in a different position because that was the last year of my career and I was a long way from home and I wasn't, for most of my career, I didn't, I like, all my career, I didn't play football for money or whatever. But then in the same breath, I wasn't the last year of my career whereby I could stop at any point if I wanted to. But here was a moment where I could. And here was something which I really needed to speak up about. I really needed to do so. And thankfully, I was in a place where, you know, I'm not at home, but they do speak English in the USA and you will be heard. I was a senior player for my team. I was seen as a leader, seen as a role model. And I 
I would have no fear in terms of speaking on the behalf of whoever needed to be spoken for. So I came forward and I spoke a lot, I spoke a lot in that time. And overall, a lot of people were receptive to listening to what you had to say in the US. You know, they've got certain things which maybe they disagree with, like, you know, some people disagree with kneeling, some people support kneeling. I think that shows how divided the country might be, even though constitutionally kneeling is very much within it, you know, and it's protected as such. So due to um, freedom of speech and freedom of peaceful protest. But yeah, I was in a whole, I was in a totally different spot. And my approach that whole year was one whereby I took control based on the leverage that I had. Like even that summer, there was a restart um, in the league based around, uh, say, getting some restrictions, well, not restrictions lifted, but the league stopped because of the pandemic. And then they started off with the tournament halfway through the year. And that was going to be in Orlando. And the plan initially was going to be for like four to six weeks. But at this time, we didn't have people over from England. So I wasn't prepared to leave Lucy and the kids by themselves whilst I disappeared for a month during the pandemic, during everything that's going on. So I used my leverage to say, no, this isn't the right time for me to do this. It's not the right time in history for me to do that. I think it was easy for other people because they're based in the US anyway and they can find help and people be comfortable with it. But that wasn't the right time for me. So, you know, I had a bigger voice in 2020. I worked hard to have that bigger voice, to be respected. And people understood everything that I said whether it's to do with George Floyd or not going to that tournament, because I think I, I, I believe myself to be a reasonable person. Some people might disagree, but when a reasonable person saying that something is unreasonable, then I think you will be listened to and people will get on board. And, you know, there was a lot of support that, that year from people that weren't just black. Whereas I think in, historically the vast majority of people that would support anything like that would be people who were black. And as a consequence, the stories went away, but I'll never forget there were protests there were some riots, but the faces were all so varied after that incident. And that meant that it had to be covered because there was no minority group or whatever, whereby you could just push it to the side. You had to cover it because the nation was represented by the people who were out there saying that it was wrong. And, you know, that gave people like myself the chance to continue talking about it for longer than maybe would have done in the past. And hopefully that made a difference to some people and the world that we're in today is a little bit better than it was then. Because if it was to be in that same position and now you'd be thinking, well, what's the point in anything when you can see something that, um, I'll say, egregious and then just say, that's fine, we move on to the next thing. And, and the final point, and to bring us back full circle from where we started our conversation about identity and, and how things were when you were young and you were intelligent and precocious and you were a, a footballer, professional footballer at the age of 17, making your first mm -hmm. team debut still dub double the length of time when you're 34 and you're retiring so much has happened to you not and it's not just a football career yeah you you are a different person you are a, an amalgamation of everything that has happened pre and during your football career mm. but the thing that has changed the most is who you are as a person and even still as a very young person you can appreciate the extraordinary difference between a five-year-old moving to Manchester from Nigeria, a 17-year-old making his first team debut in the Premier League as a footballer, and a 34-year-old amongst that civil unrest, an extraordinary visceral, as I said earlier, emotional time in a country that's not yours. Mm. It, it seems extraordinary uh, to me that even somebody who is a retiring footballer but still only 34 can have gone through all of that yeah and be able to kind of understand it enough to articulate it uh, as well as you do yeah I, I, sorry that's not a question no i was gonna say i'm not i know it wasn't a question but here's here's the thing for me i know there's certain issues 
which like I feel exceptionally passionate about. But if I show that passion, then people stop listening because they say, oh, you're just angry and they don't want to listen to it. It's, it's annoying that you have to be reasonable over things which are really unreasonable to speak of. But I've learned that the hard way. I've learned that from looking around at my peers and I like and seeing the responses that they get to things which are really, really meaningful. And some of the stereotypes and tropes and stuff like that, which get associated with people like myself, you know, like nobody wants, you want to make change, but unfortunately that change will come by being able to speak to as many people as possible. And that's whether it's within football, outside football, to do with football, to do with just the world itself. And I'm a very, very, very different person, but I think that's because I was, because of who I am and that analytical side of things. Like I look at things in totality. You know, I understand there are way more perspectives than we give credit to. And I think when you take those in, I think you can have a sort of better view of what's actually going on. Like, I don't know everything. I'm not even close to knowing everything. But I have an idea of the importance of what happens if one day the kit man doesn't turn up to the training ground. You know, it's for other people. They think their boots just magically appear there every single day. You know, like there's stuff to be said, stuff to be seen. And I think I took that on board. I love the experience for more than just the three o'clock kickoffs on a Saturday morning. And I've met so many different people and even speak little tiny bits of all the languages of people who've come and played with me and so on. So I try and be articulate so that people understand, because going back to what I said earlier, one thing I hate is being misunderstood. And I think I'm a good person. So if that comes across in what I say, then I think I've achieved what I needed to achieve. And now, like with the experience that I have, especially within football, one of the biggest takeaways I had was... <clears throat> When it comes down to it, the people who come after me shouldn't have the same career that I did. It could be and should be better because I have a chance to be able to teach them about the negative experiences which I had through my career. And if they can make those mistakes and so on earlier, then surely that gives them more of a runway to be more successful in their own. So legacy for me isn't necessarily what I did. It's about what I did for the people who are going to be coming on the other side of me. And that's why I, like, I do what I do today. And it's more than just about me. And, you know, that should be the way in my opinion, that's the way it should be for everyone. And Kicking Back is, is a title that we chose not just to, to get synergy with your podcast, which mm. I recommend to all people, Kick Back with Nadem, uh, where you ask questions instead of answer them. Yes, yes. <laughs> and do a very good job of that as well. Um, I'm rubbish at answering questions, so I'll stick to asking them. <laughs> but it's also the idea of kicking back against the stereotype. It's the idea of kicking back uh, against those people who you felt might have done you wrong. It's mm. kicking back literally, physically, pugnaciously, mm. um, in that sense. Um, but it's also the idea, and this is the, the whole reason you called your podcast Kickback, is the idea of sitting back and spending some time mm. uh, with Nader Manuha. And what I would say to you publicly now and in front of all uh -oh. these people listening, uh -oh. yeah, is that it is, it is absolutely essential that we and the listeners of Set Piece Menu and anybody else who gets hold of this to absolutely battering ram you on social media to convince you to do an audiobook version of <laughs> 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 Kicking Back because um, oh, uh, a lot dear. of people who listen to this will listen to the the big interview oh, with Graham Hunter, um, which is an excellent podcast. And he's, he's done a lovely, lovely couple uh, of chats with you. And I was, listen I was listening to it uh, just yesterday, in fact. And I've listened to you a lot over the course, particularly the last year. And... It's just ridiculously mellifluous voice that you have. And <laughs> I, I just think, I just oh, think dear. that an audiobook version of this, which you have said no to and have shown a great amount of reticence towards, 
And yet, I genuinely think it could be it could be the kind of thing that displays almost magical powers for people who have no interest in what you're saying, but just want to hear you say it. Yeah, that's that's the thing that's really weird. Like I know that I know tons <laughs> of people uh, in my circle who don't really read books but listen to audiobooks. So they're there asking you go, me, see. No, but they, but what makes it weird is they're asking me to read to them. That's what they're saying. Like a nighttime story to your child. Oh, let me let me make tell you about Make some money me. from it now. Make and some to, money. And, and to make it worse, being like that Graham Hunter interview, I really enjoyed it. But because I'm not really on social media, I didn't even know it came out. That's that's the type of person <laughs> that I am. I should be promoting this. But yeah, with the book and reading it, it was weird saying, yes, let's do a story about me. Weirder talking about myself. Weirder seeing a book about myself. And now you want to read my book about myself all the way through for hours yes yes i do and i, yeah. I want i want you to intone it and inflect it correctly oh, and i want gosh. to sit there in a little booth next to you and tell you how you got it wrong because that wasn't the meaning because that was what i wrote <laughs> in a slightly different way okay. um, so yes kickback underscore nadem is the social media account that you never check the one on instagram is private so i'm not going to give that one out uh, mm -hmm. but let nadem know and indeed send us an email to setpiecemenu at gmail.com if you agree with me if you don't you won't get read out on the podcast. Um, it is uh, incumbent upon me, Nadim, before mm. I say thank you to you officially and to plug the book one more time, to remind everybody listening to the Set Piece Menu that we do have a live show coming up in July, Wednesday the 20th of July. You were thinking I was plugging one thing and one thing only. No, no, no. I can do more than one thing. 20th of July, it's a Wednesday night. It's at 21 Soho in London. We'd love to see you there. Myticket.co.uk for all the tickets to get there uh, to see what will be a very, very special set piece menu. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Nadem Anuha. The book is available at all good bookshops. RRP, £20. If it's less than that, get it because it's a snip. Kicking back. Uh, is the book and thank you for putting up with us because this was a most self-indulgent uh, <laughs> uh, process that we have been through uh, thank you to you all for listening we'll be back with another set piece menu with Rory and Stephen for you to enjoy very soon indeed well I mean given that we did about 30 hours for the book doing another 45 minutes or so is I mean that's okay isn't it yeah that's fine yeah with regards to the audiobook I, I was thinking actually that we'll do it but it's just oh I, how now hang on a minute i've managed to change your mind once before but i doubt that i've managed to change your mind this time I, it's usually lucy no who, it wasn't uh, no who it wasn't to convince you of something that i've been trying to convince no, you of for ages. It, it, it wasn't lucy i was just i was just thinking about it but it's just it's just it's, the time is so daunting it's such a long time to go through it all you get what i'm coming from no because it's not you know tolstoy but, I mean, with still, all due respect, Nadam, it is not Tolstoy. But where would we record it? How would we record it? Um, I would I'd basically just come to your house and you can record onto that microphone that you're speaking to right now. So that's the thing then. So why do you need to come to my house to do so? Because I need to make sure you don't get it wrong. Which is the problem. Like, how am I getting it wrong? It's actively me that's reading just it. Just going to be that, that guy on, as we say in the media industry, talk back. I'd just be clicking through and you'd just be like, no, do yeah. it again. Exactly, exactly. Do it again. No, so do I'm, it again I'm, with feeling. I'm I'm open to do it, but the downside is like if it, if it's going to be the two of us finding time to do it together, then like it becomes more tricky because I was thinking I could just be do it just chipping away at every. You day, just want basically. to do it in a darkened room, don't you? You, you yeah, want to do it just, without any sort of prospect of anybody listening to it. No, it's not. It's not. It's not that because you need the silence anyway. But like I say, it's just there's a lot. But I, I thought to myself, I've got an hour every day where I could just be doing it, and before you know it, maybe it's. 
a month it takes to do, but then it'll be done. But then if it's a case of you have to come to my house every day for a month, all of a sudden it's a bit more daunting, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know, you got quite a nice house. Yeah, but still, you know what I mean? It's a lot. It's a lot. That's the thing. It's like how there's a big old cake here, but like, how will it be sliced? That's the question.